0: Welcome to Global Voices, a podcast by Equanimity Foundation, where we share international perspectives on global development, peace and security, and social innovation. I'm your host, Matthew Trimpleil, and today I'm excited to be joined by Dr. Joseph Collins. Dr. Collins has been involved with and has researched US foreign and military policy for decades. He spent over 20 years in the armed forces, retiring as a colonel in 1998. He served in a variety of governmental and teaching posts, including as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense and Stability Operations at the Pentagon, He taught at West Point and other universities and has two books and over 100 signed publications to his name. He's an expert in Afghan policy, nation building, and irregular warfare. Dr. Collins, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Glad to be here. So we have a lot to get into, but I'd like to sort of start off at your beginning, the beginning of your career. What exactly motivated you to serve in the U.S. in the way that you did? How did you get your start?
1: Well, I was... uh... A young man going to college and uh, I knew at the end of it because it was in the Vietnam era that I would be drafted. I got interested in ROTC, maybe too interested in ROTC. And uh, I I, uh, went into the army and stuck with it. And uh, after about uh, 10 years, the army decided that they wanted me to take a nominative assignment I, through a series of very fortunate accidents, I earned a spot at West Point in the teaching faculty, and so that meant I had to go to graduate school, and they were delighted when I picked Columbia because they hadn't had anyone uh, go there for any, a number of years, and uh, my, my majors there were defense policy and security study, as Soviet studies, um, and I uh, uh you know the 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 soviet end of it became very very much focused on foreign policy which became you know more focused on soviet policy in the third world on uh, the developing world and then uh i got interested because of the late Owen bialer's uh urging in the issue of friendship treaties, which got me interested in the United States and Afghanistan. Um, the Soviets invaded Afghanistan on my birthday. I thought that was a, some kind of omen. And af- after the invasion, uh, a man who would become my uh, dissertation advisor returned from government service, Marshal Schulman. He was a Soviet affairs advisor to Secretary of State Cyrus Vance. And uh, he was very interested in the, in the whys and wherefores. And so I focused uh, my dissertation on that particular topic. And uh, I've been speaking and writing and thinking about Afghanistan uh, ever since that time.
0: So I'm sure that we will hear a lot about your expertise. I'd also like to focus on another posting of yours. I want to make sure I get the title right here. Has uh, mm-hmm. your time? Your time at the Pentagon as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Stability Operations. Right. What exactly is this role, and how did you begin working there? Um, was uh, part of
1: the uh, office of the Assistant Secretary uh, for Special Operations and in Low Intensity Conflict. Um, the the portfolio there on stability ops uh, originally was peacekeeping, humanitarian affairs. And when the war in Afghanistan started, I was one of the few people who, when they showed people's pictures on the slide, I could identify who some of them were. So it was kind of a natural fit that I I got involved uh, in uh, first the operations uh, to uh, liberate Afghanistan, and then later on in humanitarian assistance and what later came to be known as nation building, which actually... I'm not a fan of that term. I'm not sure we ever really tried very well, at least, to nation build in uh, Afghanistan. But uh, still to this day, when I look down the road, there's an awful lot of improvements to Afghanistan that happened in those early years, 2001 to 2004, when I had that job. I say this because nobody talks about this. The country the Taliban is inheriting right now is radically different than the one they ruled in 2000. And part of that has to do with nation building. uh, And part of it has to do with some good work by the Afghan government. Um, uh, Cell phones are very common in Afghanistan. They think close to 90% of the people have access to a cell phone. The internet is well known there are millions of Afghans who have become, in effect, self-educated. And then when you add to that improvements in education, uh, healthcare, and whatever, with due allowances for waste, fraud, abuse, and corruption, Afghanistan in many ways has been transformed. No one, no one that I've read has said a word about urbanization in Afghanistan and what that means for the future of the country. you know, Kabul right now is probably four or five times the size and the population that it was when I was in my role in the Pentagon. All of that, all, all of the, those things are, are the context for the future.
0: I'm very excited to continue on this thread of state building. I've actually worked at the Perry World House on a project Uh, devoted to nation building and the increase of state capacity in the US as well as the historic uh, French colonial empire but before we get there I'd like to sort of talk about 9-11 which obviously its 20th anniversary is coming up and I'd like to hear a little bit about your experiences uh, shortly (laughs) Uh, before during and after I'm sure that you absolutely uh, have a lot to tell uh, there.
1: It's amazing yeah Uh, on the day 9-11 itself um, uh, I had come back into the Pentagon to help people I'd worked with before, like uh, Paul Wolfowitz and, and others, to get started. I had a job already at the National Defense University, and I was not particularly interested in doing, you know, another few years in the Pentagon, which is, uh, is a very, very tough place to work. But in any case, I hung around later, and by September 11th, I had two jobs. One, I was still helping the Deputy Secretary, Paul Wolfowitz, with issues having to do with defense review and um, had taken up responsibilities in the summer also as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Peacekeeping and Humanitarian Affairs, which was later actually was in the process in September and November of being renamed Stability Operations, because My portfolio was just so much wider than peacekeeping and humanitarian affairs. But in any case, we were waiting to go in the deputy's office, and uh, the first plane hit the building. And uh, we got delayed, of course, and I had a small hideaway office on the E-ring. It was the greatest office. I mean, it wasn't, literally wasn't, it was maybe... (sighs) seven by eight in size but uh, I had a desk and a telephone and I had a seat on the earring but I in a room that didn't have a room number which meant no one knew where it was except for me and the people in the outer office but I was in there watching the second plane hit the building in New York when I felt the entire structure of the pentagon which of course is massive uh, it shuddered, and uh, Ironically, a bit. Uh, the first thing that hit my my mind was, "Geez, this is like surround sound." And then I realized I'm, I was watching this unfold on a TV that was ten years old and probably cost about fifty dollars uh, when it was new, and I realized something just happened in this building, and uh, you know, very quickly we got alerts and. Um, I tore out of there and went back. I went back to huh, hold on here. Uh, there we go. Um, yeah, I went back. I I ran back halfway across the building to where my office suite was for stability ops. And, um, you know, um, my people were very, very bright and didn't need me to tell them to leave the building. And they were all gone. I went into my office and then the, uh, perhaps my greatest contribution of the day, uh, I answered about 10 phone calls that were incoming from relatives, my people telling them, Hey, they're all safe. They're out of the building. <laughs> I have to go too. And then I, I, spent most of the rest of the day, uh, on the lawn where the plane was with a friend of many years from the army, Lieutenant John Van Alsty- Lieutenant General John Van Alstine. And, uh, we, uh, We self-appointed ourselves the liaison uh, between the fire chief who was in charge of everything out there and the front office of the Pentagon. I got out there soon enough to see Mr. Rumsfeld on the way back in. I didn't get a chance to talk to him, but uh, later on, uh, they showed pictures of him actually helping some of the people who were taken out of the building uh, and... uh, Uh, In any case, uh, it it was a very interesting thing. Probably the the most interesting thing was the the only phone we could find was a landline and uh, two security guards were literally watched the plane hit the building from about 150 yards away. And in the front of their booth was a huge field of debris. And behind their booth was a huge field of debris from the airplane. But somehow, the, the two officers who were in the booth were, were spared any, any harm, uh, and their booth, their booth was left intact. Uh, and down the road later on, uh, we found a car about 150, maybe somewhere between 150 and 300 yards away from the impact. Uh, And it was a small Toyota, uh, like a Toyota Corolla, and it was just, it had already passed the Pentagon when the plane hit, but a piece of the plane that looked like something, some kind of hydraulic mechanism went flying through the air and hit the car and literally removed the door uh, of this this car. So it, it was a tremendous impact. And uh, in any case, it was a it was a traumatic day. Uh, it was a traumatic day for all of us there. And uh, I had the feeling, as I have on a few other occasions in my life, that we were looking the wrong way. You know, we spent all this money on defense, uh, and here it was. Although pre- people from the previous administration, particularly folks like Richard Clark, and uh, also the head of the CIA, George Tennant. Those people knew the danger of Al Qaeda, but at that point in time, they hadn't really gotten the attention of the national security bigwigs.
0: Uh, I, I'd actually like to continue on that thread, if that's sure. right. Firstly, let me just say thank you for sharing. I understand that this is a, a difficult thing to talk about for many people, but I'm very glad to hear that you were able to do your part, you know, finding your people, even making phone calls. But going back to this idea of, you know, what did we know before this tragedy took place, many reports have cited that there was a lack of interagency communication between uh, U.S. agencies like the CIA, NSA, FBI, Um, and this led to a critical failure in the time shortly before 9-11. Yeah, there was a, uh, there was
1: a uh, uh, a very stark intelligence report in August um, that Al-Qaeda was um, working on uh, um, anti-U.S. plans that involved hijacking and um, uh, there was in co- uh, uh, very quickly thereafter a, a national security council, uh, high level national security council uh, meeting uh, on the subject. But again, there wasn't anything specific. And interestingly enough, the people who had been in the Clinton administration were very much into the notion of non state actors and the power of non state actors. The people who were in Bush 43s, many of which were in Bush 41, as was I. I, I was still in uniform, uh, but I was working in OSD policy at the time. When they heard terrorism, what they thought was state sponsor. And so, When you talked about terrorism to those folks, they immediately began to see and ask, is this Iraq? Is this um, uh, Iran? Who are these people? And the notion that these entities could have agency all of their own, these non-state actors, was kind of a new thought in Republican circles at the time. Sad. But you know, nine one one of course causes a, a tremendous reaction. Uh, some would say overreaction, and that would be fair in some cases, in some ways. Uh, and the, the the first target of action was Afghanistan, because Osama bin Laden had been resident in Afghanistan since nineteen ninety six. He was very wired in. His people were accorded sort of superstar status in the country. Uh, The vehicles that belonged to al-Qaeda had Ministry of Defense uh, license plates. And al-Qaeda was very useful for the Taliban because they were able to train Taliban cadres uh, as well. And the Taliban, of course, was still fighting the Northern Alliance, which held somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of Afghanistan in the north.
0: There's definitely a lot to think about there. I'd like to, just before we actually get into Afghanistan a little bit more, just talk about that. It's been 20 years at this point. Osama bin Laden has been killed. The Pentagon has been reconstructed. We have a a completely new World Trade Center complex. A lot has changed in the US and globally. What are your thoughts as we go into this 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks?
1: You know, uh, in some ways, the greatest improvements that we've had have been made have been in uh, intelligence communications, um, things like the National Counterterrorism Center, uh, and also in in what we referred to euphemistically uh, as Homeland Defense. Uh, And we now have the Department of Homeland Security, which is, you know, a vast bureaucracy composed mainly of peace parts that existed in 2001, uh, but now uh, has somewhat of a central direction. And uh, our security uh, uh, is uh, much more important there. I think our operations in Iraq, Afghanistan, the Philippines and other places have um, made a great contribution also to keeping terrorists on the back foot and not affording them the opportunity to plan uh, and organize uh, stunts along the way. So a good deal of, you know, good fortune there too. Tremendous amount of money uh, and a bit of wasted time. I was never a great fan of the invasion of Iraq. Although I have to say right now, our our activities in Iraq seem to have have, had, ironically, uh, a more positive outcome uh, uh, than uh, our activities in Afghanistan, something I would have never imagined years ago. You know, th- th- that's about it in a nutshell. Um, we've spent a lot of money, spent a lot of time uh, working on this. We've got involved in a bunch of other things uh, which, you know, have ha- have had some negative consequences, things like... Uh, um, you know, detainee abuse and things of that nature. We have uh, Guantanamo is still, you know, part of the global war and ter- terrorism hangover. And uh, in my last major project as uh, director of a little research cell at National Defense University uh, in 2015, uh, I had the, uh, the opportunity to work on a, a lessons learned book. Uh, We were chartered by the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs to write an independent uh, assessment of lessons learned, or as we preferred to call them, lessons encountered, Uh, hopefully one day to be learned. We adopted that Britishism uh, very quickly after we realized many of these lessons learned were lessons that we encountered after Vietnam and other uh, mistakes along the way. But um, as far as international terrorism goes, it's metastasized, it's in a number of different places. Uh, it's less of a threat to the United States and Western Europe and more of a threat um, to countries in the Middle East and Africa, and to a lesser extent uh, in Southeast Asia. You it, know, it's still there. Um, you know, uh, I was reading the United Nations report. On Afghanistan, it has the the bureaucratic title of the 12th report of the analytical support and sanctions monitoring team, blah, 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 concerning the Taliban and associated individuals. And lo and behold, uh, we still have a large Al-Qaeda presence uh, in Afghanistan tied into um, the Taliban in general, especially to the Haqqani network, uh, which is coming to the fore in Kabul. And uh, there may be as many as 500 members of Al-Qaeda uh, in, in and around it's Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda on the Indian subcontinent. And the great <laughs> uh, categorization of terrorist groups are considered to be separate groups. And uh, the truth of the matter is the Taliban itself is a, is a group of separate groups. And... Uh, we we ought not to uh, forget that, but in any case, um, still that relationship flourishes, and uh, ISIS in Afghanistan, AQI ISIS K, ISIS K became an enemy of the Taliban. You know, it's kind of interesting. You know, the the most one of the most fascinating things about terrorists is uh, when they're not fighting their foreign enemy, uh, they're fighting their allied and associated groups who essentially believe pretty much the same thing. But um, um, ISIS-K and uh, the Taliban are great enemies. Um, The United States uh, also took action. Uh, There were reports in newspapers that there was a very distant cooperation going on between the Taliban and United States forces on anti-ISIS. Uh, activities. So those things are are still a factor. And how did these things get resolved? I don't know. Uh, there's no simple answer. We're twenty years into this and there is a um, group of terrorism experts that say, you know there are more terrorists and terrorism groups uh, and they're more metastasized and geographically spread out. And then you have lots of local, groups who have decided that it's to their benefit to affiliate with either ISIS or Al-Qaeda. And uh, some of those people are very serious about it and some aren't. Uh, that's happened in Nigeria, it's happened in Somalia, uh, and whatever. So um, the dysfunctional category called terrorism and terrorist groups, that that uh, uh, is still a growth industry. We haven't... Uh, Uh, We have fought it, but we haven't eliminated it. We haven't changed it. Uh, And in some ways, um, you know, uh, uh, the roots of these disputes, you know, go back to disputes inside of Islam. And uh, uh, it's not something that the West is going to be able uh, to work on creatively to eliminate it. Uh, we're, going to, uh, we're going to have to endure it and, and uh, take note of it in the future. The Israelis had uh, uh, vis-a-vis Hamas uh, and others uh, an ugly phrase for their strategy, uh, which was cutting the grass, meaning that uh, you know, terrorists and terrorist groups would grow like weeds and that all you could really do every now and then was cut the grass. I find that terribly unsatisfying. It revolts the strategist in me uh, to think that, you know, uh, that somehow uh, these human problems are just so much crabgrass uh, and that they're not really subject uh, uh, to us doing anything about them. But that's the case. The long war, the war on terrorism, We like to think it's over, we're uh, trying desperately since the time of Secretary of State Hillary Clinton to pivot to the Far East, uh, which was one unfortunate uh, 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 conversation. And we're still thinking of, hey, we've got to stop doing things in the Middle East and Southwest Asia. Simply because you know the bread and butter defense issues are really in East Asia, or and South Asia now, which if, if people in the in the Department of Defense have discovered South Asia. It's it's kind of remarkable. For years and generations, we've had the Pacific Command, and now the Pacific Command is the Indo-Pacific Command uh, because we're realizing that. In many ways, the key to the balance of power in the future uh, is in the Indian subcontinent. And, uh, uh, you know, if you're going to compete with China, a China that flirts very seriously with Russia, um, you're going to have to have uh, an even larger coalition, one that includes India, which is a country that's not necessarily fond of the notion of alliances and becoming a member of someone else's alliance. So interesting developments. But uh, at the same time, the Middle East and Southwest Asia, just when you want to look away, just when you want to pivot, just just when you want to shift your attention to major combat operations uh, uh, against China, in terms of your defense preparations at least, The Middle East and Southwest Asia demand your attention. And they certainly have it this week.
0: I'd I'd like to actually talk about this withdrawal and transition and how exactly we're handling it. In 2011, you published a book called Understanding War in Afghanistan. And you added this note. You said, a Taliban victory with black turban fighters triumphantly riding their pickup trucks into Kabul is highly unlikely and nearly impossible Unless the West abandons the Afghan regime, it's 2021, 10 years after publication. How do you look back on this statement? Well, geez, I, I
1: you know, I, I feel like Nostradamus now. It's <laughs> exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. You know, all the way up to the end of the Obama administration, we decided that, for lack of better, de mieux, as the French would say, um, keeping a modest American presence there. Uh, and working by, with, and through the Afghan forces and the Afghan government uh, was the way for us to handle that particular situation. Sadly, that was true. Uh, And we're seeing the downside of it right now. People say, well, you know, it was the Afghan army that gave up. Well, the Afghan army that's been fighting like hell for the last seven years, taken 66,000 killed in action, that's uh, considerably more than the United States lost in Vietnam at a population one-tenth the size of the United States. They fought very well for a long time. And you got to ask yourself, how come these guys gave up in the ninth inning? What happened? They thought they, all of a sudden that they'd become alone, that they weren't getting enough help from the government in Kabul. And that the United States had ultimately, uh, as they have in many other cases, gotten cold feet and moved away. I think that my statement, which I have to tell you, I've totally forgotten <laughs> that I that I'd written that, uh, uh, is absolutely true. You know, there were a number of huge problems in Afghanistan, things that we never solved. Uh, uh, the effectiveness and, and the corruption and the inefficiency in the, in the Kabul government, uh, it didn't seem to get much better. The support for the armed forces seemed to go downhill from 2011, 2012, 2013. And, you know, the old bugaboo of ghost soldiers, the old bugaboo of soldiers not being paid for months at a time, uh, those things became more and more prominent. Over time. And, uh, uh, you know, the thing, the glue that was holding all of this together um, was the American commitment to support the people in Kabul. And um, unfortunately, um, that was pried apart in the Trump administration, and the Biden administration decided to go down the same path that Trump did. Um, I am probably the greatest anti-Trump person <laughs> that you're ever going to have on any podcast. Uh, someone asked me when I became an anti-Trump Republican, and I said, uh, it was around 1980. And I was just back from Korea, and I was going to Columbia, and uh, Donald Trump was all over the tabloids, and it just really <clears throat> impressed me that this was an abominable, valueless person Uh, who was one of the greatest grifters in American history. Um, And that never changed. It never changed. And uh, unfortunately, he had the right idea when H.R. McMaster was his national security advisor, and that was to strengthen our efforts. He popped up troop strength from 8,500 to over 14,000. But quickly, he tired of that. He didn't see the results, and he said, I want out. And since we couldn't get a, a genuine negotiation between Kabul and the Taliban, he decided that he would, he would, pushing our allies aside, he would negotiate directly with the Taliban. And the agreement they came up with was disgraceful. I mean, certainly there was no good pro quo. There was no trust but verify. Uh, There was the United States deciding that we would pull out by May of 2021. And the Afghans gave us, uh, in the words of of Paul Simon, "A, a pocket full of mumbles, such are promises. You know, probably the only implicit promise that the Taliban made, which they kept, was they stopped attacking U.S. forces which prior to that had been at a premium. And unfortunately, this was a terrible thing. The Biden administration came in and the original sin here was breaking with Kabul. Um, And what happened there was subtle and psychological, but the Afghans got it like that. Ashraf Ghani, I love the man. He is not a politician. He's not someone who will impress you that he can feel your pain. He is an intellectual. Um, uh, He is a very wise, very well-read man. He's a technocrat. He did tremendous things, by the way, when he was finance minister that he gets no credit for. Uh, One of which was fixing the currency. There were five Afghan currencies when he took over. And in the space of a few months, with a little bit of help from the United States and a couple of European countries, he swapped out the currency using the Hawala system inside of Afghanistan. And it was a brilliant effort and it was done and it was so well done, no one's noticed. Afghanistan has a stable currency, one stable currency. Uh, Another thing he did, Ashraf Ghani, was uh, telecommunications He went to the international community. They came up with very inadequate plans. And he said, no, we're turning to the private sector. He licensed four different companies to put up cell towers and run the cell system in the country. It became the second greatest item of revenue in the Afghan budget. All done, uh, Afghan style, no USAID input. And uh, it was, in effect, a business deal, harnessing the private sector uh, to a development project, which is something that we talk about all the time and very rarely does it get done, it seems. But in any case, uh, Ghani's principal attraction, after having been elected twice under cloudy conditions, uh, his greatest calling card was the fact that the Americans looked to him to lead Afghanistan. And when we began to negotiate with the Taliban and we made an agreement with him, these people, we made an agreement with people who refused to talk to Ashraf Ghani. They refused to talk to him. Still to this day, they don't want to talk to the Afghan government. So, in any case, um, we Politically, we emasculated Ashraf Ghani and we subtly gave the talking a talking point to the Taliban that no one could ever purchase. It was so precious. So when the local Taliban commander whispered in the tea house to the local Afghan commander, uh, he could say with complete justification that. The United States is abandoning you. They made a deal with us. They're going to leave. They're going to leave on May 4th. And Biden extended that first to he, he with a 10-year extended it to September eleventh, uh, and then now to uh, August 31st. And um, people wonder, how did all of these units of the Afghan army end up Walking off the battlefield, some of them with their weapons, a thousand of them <laughs> defected to, to or went into at least Tajikistan. You know, how did those things happen? Provincial capitals, I can remember saying, 40 more around 40 days ago, I can remember saying, with all this fighting going on and all of these Taliban operations. The Taliban have still never seized and held a provincial capital of the 34 provinces. That went away. That thing which lasted since 2001, that went away in a week and a half. And pretty soon it was, they're inching up. Uh, They've gone from 65 to 57. Uh, the government has gone from controlling 65 to 57% of the country, and before you know it, every major city, to include the ones with great airfields, facilities like uh, Herat, Shindan, uh, Masri Sharif, uh, Kandahar, they all fell, not after a big fight, not after combat in the cities, not after military operations on urban terrain. They fell because The Taliban had a message, and the message was, the Americans are leaving, okay?
0: You got to deal with us. What I find interesting about this narrative of the Afghan army is, you know, right before the withdrawal, every politician in the U.S. who was supporting it was saying that, you know, the Afghan army is funded, they're trained, and they're equipped, and they can handle it, and now that things have gone the way they are, I think a lot of people in the U.S. say that the Afghan army is solely to blame that they didn't fight hard enough.
1: Yeah, uh, my my view is these are people who who 66,000 of them are in the grave. And you can imagine three and four times that number are horribly wounded. And trust me, they don't have great army medical systems. They don't have the Veterans Administration. You lose your leg and your arm in Afghanistan, you're probably going to bleed out before you get to a, an aid station. But even if you don't, and you recover, you, know, you are going to be unable to do. So these people uh, had tremendous things. And you know, when you ask the people gently, uh, like the Asian survey did in 2019, what do you feel about the Taliban? What you get is 85% of the people in 2019 basically said, we don't want anything to do with the Taliban. Now, contrasting that, there were places, um, and I would say Helmand Province was probably one. Parts of Kandahar probably won. Parts of Urzgan, maybe all of Urzgan. The Taliban could have stood for election and won in those places. Not that the Taliban is ever interested in standing for election, because that's, that's not what Emirates do. Uh, that's not what Islamic Sharia law-following countries do, it, in any case. But there were areas where there was some, some great popularity. But for the most part, particularly in the north, uh, I, I can remember in uh, traveling with uh, the Comptroller of the Defense Department, under Secretary Dov Zakheim, we went to the dedication of a girls' school outside of Mazar-e-Sharif. It was a high school. And uh, Mr. Rumsfeld had gone there uh, early on, and the people had come out of the woodwork to thank him for his efforts in liberation. And they basically said, but you know, we have this wonderful girls' school, and one of your guys dropped a bomb (laughs) on the biggest building, and uh, can you help us out? To his credit, Mr. Rumsfeld said, we'll do it even if I have to raise the money privately, which I don't think he did. But in any case, he was a stand-up guy and uh, he made sure that we fixed that girls' school. A year and a half or so later, Dov Zakheim and I went up there and they had the grand opening and it was just incredible. Uh, Now, most of the the people there were, in this particular instance, were mainly Uzbek and Tajik. And um, (laughs) there wasn't a burqa in sight the young high school girls were singing songs in English and presenting flowers to all the dignitaries who were there. And uh, uh, in true Afghan fashion, one of the leaders of the school took Dov Zakheim, who was the comptroller of the defense department, and said, you know, this is a wonderful school and thank you for everything you did. But by the way, we need a gymnasium. <laughs> so the girls can learn sports and whatever. And, and so he put the hooks into Undersecretary Zakheim to, uh, to uh, make sure that we got a gymnasium there. There were, there were very little support for the Taliban early on. And of course, over time, it probably grew. Over time, people learned that the Kabul government was uh, incompetent and was not in it for them and they all read the stories of you know how uh, the cabinet officers and the most prominent people in the country had houses in the UAE and uh, other places and i'm sure the taliban became more acceptable but ultimately you know uh, it was funny americans to include myself you may have found this line in that book that you quoted from too that uh, there was no military solution what was going on in Afghanistan. Well, the the Taliban found a military solution with the great help from Pakistan, with great military support and advice, uh, with great information operations and dedicated, motivated cadres, and and, and with uh, a minimum of expenses for technology and vehicles and training and things of that nature, they won. They want a military victory. You know, uh, I, I remember that famous scene from American history where someone says to Ben Franklin coming out of the uh, Constitutional Convention and says to him, well, what are we going to have? We're going to have a monarchy or we're going to have something else. And he says, it, you'll have a republic if you can keep it. And now the... Um, the Taliban are in a situation where they, they're saying it's going to be an Islamic emirate. And I say to them, if you can keep it. And uh, there's a lot of questions there. This is not 2001 Afghanistan. This is a wholly different, more developed
0: thing. And On this idea of development, if I can just jump in. Sure. Uh, you know, a lot of popular conceptions of U.S. involvement in Afghanistan typically center around the idea of sending heavily armed troops to the country to fight insurgent forces, you know, just in the desert. But a lot of your work, from what I've read, puts focus on the idea of nation building, and, and we can get into uh, how you feel about this term. But how do you define this concept as it applies to Afghanistan, and why do you think it's so important to U.S. policy? I I
1: thought in the beginning, uh, nation building actually was something that Afghans would have to do uh, in the long run. But what we could help them jumpstart was institution building. And we could help them set up an armed forces. And that was interesting in the beginning. Um, Some people, too, including Marshal Fahim, who took over after Massoud was assassinated by uh, al-Qaeda assassins, Uh, three weeks before 9-11. Interesting timing. But uh, Marshal Fahim said, hey, we already have an army uh, and we have great commanders. I'm a great commander. Um, Dostam is a great commander. We, uh, our forces need better uniforms, better guns, and a little bit of training. And there's your Afghan National Army. Hamid Karzai said, no, that's not what I was thinking. I was thinking that we would have a national army, the way Afghanistan had a national army under the King Zahir Shah and under uh, Prime Minister uh, Daoud. So that's uh, there's an interesting story there. So we started from scratch, as opposed to using the war board forces uh, to build an army and it went very slow, but. Let me trot out an excuse here. There was very little fighting in Afghanistan from 2002 to 2004. And people would say this is primarily a stability operation and not really counterinsurgency. And the Taliban were in, and I'm sure they were preparing to make a comeback, but they weren't very much in evidence. So we can be forgiven, I think, with uh, taking our time. One thing we should have done a much better job on was the Afghan Air Force needed just tremendous amount of help in the Afghan Air Force. And uh, unfortunately, Mr. Rumsfeld was, there was a joke, and I, I would come into these briefings with Sencom guys, and, and there, there was a joke there. Uh, and there was always some nervous senior officer who would say, now let me get this straight. We're not going to talk about the Air Force today, right? We want to We wanna keep the secretary focused on uh, these other issues about funding and ground forces uh, and whatever, because for a while there, if you talked about, if you ended up talking about the Afghan Air Force, you would would lose Mr. Rumsfeld very, very quickly. And unfortunately, building an, an army based on infantry divisions is very doable. Much harder to do a police force even harder to do that that is, is in the Air Force, particularly the Air Force requires a bunch of pilot class college graduates, hot shots in white scarfs, and the Afghans had plenty. Potentially, they had plenty of them. It's the technicians uh, in so many different areas that developed countries have that the Afghans didn't, and. You can take an illiterate fella and make him a private in a police unit or an army unit, but he's no use to the Air Force. You need people who can do things on a greater scale. So that, that was uh, certainly a, a problematical effort there. There were also, uh, you know, tugs of war between international organizations and USAID and other people. And later on, when the military was in greater numbers, their commanders got SERP funds, commanders emergency response program funds, and a lot of back and forthing about it. Uh, Much of this is documented in the many, many reports of the Special Inspector General, which of course are, uh, are, are all about waste, fraud, and abuse. And as a military strategist, I I, I salute uh, the people of Sagar, the Special Inspector General
0: on Afghan Reconstruction. I, I was just about to ask you about that. What, what are your thoughts about the uh, abuses and corruption that happened in Afghanistan, as reported by Sagar? As
1: a bit of a military historian, too, I can tell you war is waste, fraud, and abuse on a grand scale. Um, Mark Clark, when he was U.S. commander uh, in Italy in World War II, said that 15 to 20 percent of all the supplies that came to theater were misappropriated one way or the other. Now, sometimes that's criminals, and sometimes that's military units getting gas that should go to another unit and whatever. It's a very, very difficult kind of process. And in Afghanistan, uh, where corruption is a way of life, by the way, the person who knows this issue with the fidelity of someone having tried to run a business in Afghanistan is Sarah Chase. And you you guys need to talk to her about this. Um, Corruption is just a way of life. And Um, In the beginning, we thought, well, you know, we'll fix a lot of things, and then we'll get to corruption. That probably wasn't uh, a, a, a good strategy. We had to work on it from the beginning, and to tell you the truth, we turned a blind eye into it. And then when we put billions of U.S. and billions of European dollars and euros into Afghanistan, what we did was we fueled corruption to a tremendous extent. At the same time, we spent a lot of money on counter-narcotics and I swear to God, it just seemed to me that the more we spent on counter-narcotics, the worse the narcotics situation got. I I don't know the answer to that problem. Right now, uh, according to the United Nations, Number one source of funding for the Taliban, narcotics, and other criminal activities in the country. Upwards of one and a half billion dollars a year. So, you know, the Pakistanis had an excellent client. And to a large extent, I think the, the, the Taliban became very much self-sufficient in terms of resources. I can remember during various years of the war, people mentioning that, hey, your local Talib is being paid more to fight in the guerrilla forces than the government is paying. Uh, I I could never really sort of track those things. Uh, The Taliban made good use of their resources, and because of their religious basis, I think, and, and their... Their harsh Islamic punishments, they were probably in the end significantly less corrupt uh, than the government. Now, does that continue on? Um, I've already heard reports of people bribing individual talibs at checkpoint uh, to, you know, hey, let us pass through. Uh, And I, I think those things are quite possible and the temptation uh, uh, is going to be there. It's going to be very, very interesting to see how the Taliban, uh, with all of the international sanctions that are against them, uh, they're probably inheriting a country that has no money in the bank, its own bank. They don't have any great foreign sponsors. Certainly, Pakistan is not going to give them all that much. But they're going to have to try and run a country the same way they ran an insurgent force. I, I don't understand their view of public financing.
0: I, I'd like to continue on this sort of intersection between corruption and development in the area. You've stated before that the U.S. is good at providing fish but not very good at teaching people how to fish. Uh, that is to say, we're good at giving people resources, but not necessarily good at teaching people how to build up their own capacity. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. Americans are can-do people. Um, they know that they can put together a company and hire the right people uh, and get things going and get it on the march and, you know, meet the milestones and the contracts and get things going. You know, when you deal with uh, Afghanistan, particularly in Afghanistan in the early 2000s, where the the population had suffered from a tremendous brain drain, there's a, just a great tendency to say, "Hey, let's go in there and you know, get this done." And I can remember disputes about hiring foreign laborers. People would say, "Why do not you hire Afghans?" You know, there weren't any Afghans who could run a large paving machine. You know, but guess what? You go to Turkey, you can find them. You go to India. You can find them. And and of course, you know, the Chinese have the same problem on their Belt and Road Initiative projects. You know, they like to use Chinese labor. Why? Well, they've got a lot of it. It's very helpful to them because they're solving labor problems. They're solving problems with their state-owned industries. But, you know, I I think Americans are are not like that. And, uh, you know, the few projects... Uh, like Ashraf Ghani and the cell phones, the few projects that were run uh, like that were terrific. There also were uh, some Ashraf Ghani, uh, the World Bank anthropology guy, (laughs) uh, inspired uh, some things where there were programs where the local people in the villages Had councils and they determined the priority of projects and they supervised the projects and uh, I can't remember the name of the program but but some of those things worked tremendously well Uh, and then the people felt that hey these were our projects Uh, we supervised these projects and they you know let it be known to the local Taliban hey look that you know dam over there is being built by Western contractors, funded by USAID. But this project over here was paid for by people in our village and we supervised it and it was built with local labor. You get my point. And the, and the point was, you know, there's a target for you over here, but stay away from this. And uh, uh, that's a uh, a huge problem. But, you know, all of these things in the end, you know, remind me of what John Paul Van said about counterinsurgency in Vietnam. And he said, you can say all you want that it's 80% political and only 20% military, but the first job you have to do is you have to establish security and if you don't have security you don't have predictability you don't have predictability you don't have business and you know you've got to get the security picture right and in areas where they did there was some progress and some great things were done
0: mm-hmm. with with about 20 minutes left i'd like to sort of pivot a little bit to the crucial issue of women's rights in afghanistan uh, some taliban uh, government officials and Spokespersons have stated that they would preserve women's rights to work and study so long as they you know, had different facial and head coverings, but attitudes on the ground in Kabul predict a much more dangerous outcome for Afghan women. What are your thoughts on the Taliban's rule in this aspect so far? Well, I think what you're going to see is that
1: the Taliban is going to talk a good game because the people who are in the government, highest levels, they're very image conscious, and they know that they've got to talk the right game to be eligible for international funding and sanctions relief and all of that other sort of stuff. Uh, But the Taliban is a group of groups and people who are at the local level, who are running things, they have their vision of what Sharia law says about women. And uh, uh, the government can talk all at once about young women in the university and in the workplace. But is that going to happen? Uh, color me skeptical. You know, I've been following this and we had a group project to talk about uh, futures in Afghanistan. I can remember it well because we, we ended up publishing uh, the results of it in a small wars journal. It was a very tough thing. It was a it was a paper that was written by a professor and uh, a dozen graduate students about what needs to be done. And of course, over time, each one of my guys developed expertise in this area. And I remember we had one navy doctor who was in route to uh, Afghanistan to run a hospital in Kandahar. He uh, dove into this business of women and society and. He was totally amazed, as half a scientist himself, about how important in the developing world women were to the the maturation of the economy. And we made a very, very strong point about that, that you're not going to bring Afghanistan forward without the help of 50% of the population. You're going to have to do that.
0: What do you think American citizens can do now to support Afghan people, especially marginalized groups like women? Do you think there's a role? For I, I think the,
1: I think there's great there's great running room uh, for our diplomats and to try and keep the Taliban honest. I mean, the Taliban regime was. particularly in its last years, was characterized by cruelty, and particularly cruelty to women. And they they did so many different things when they determined, for example, not knowing their own country, they didn't realize that a lot of the midwives, a lot of the midwives, uh, this is back in 2001 now, a lot of the midwives who would go forth to help people have babies, a lot of these midwives, were widows. And they determined that a woman could not go out without a male relative. Well, a lot of these women didn't have male relatives. And all of a sudden, these restrictions on women were a factor in causing a tremendous uptick in maternal and child deaths in the country. So and there's room for education there. I don't doubt that there are some people who have learned lessons learned, if you will, from 2001, although I don't see much evidence of it. And the thing that's going to hold all that back is that the Taliban is a group of groups and it doesn't have a lot of institutions. I can remember stories of the Afghan treasury being... Two or three foot lockers in uh, full of cash in Mullah Omar's house, and <laughs> that if you needed money, it had to be uh, in terms of cash, and you know you had to go to Mullah Omar's house in Kandahar uh, to make things happen. L- Lord knows how for much further they've gotten than that, and how much lessons learned they've had of their own experience. But, you know, the reports we hear are, are not good. And surely, during the latter stages of the conflict, you know, uh, the persecution of women was there. The hunting of female officials, uh, prominent women, parliamentarians, police women these things were, were very, very common. Of Afghans in the United States, I'm sad to say, I know... I know a whole handful who've watched members of their family shot down in front of their eyes. And frequently this had to do with modernization, had to do with women's rights. It had to do with human rights. And this is, I think, you know, who, who are the great losers in all of this? Not the United States. Our reputation will recover. Some people are probably already planning with what are we going to do with all that money we saved this year from not having to support the Afghan National Army and police? And uh, we're a great power. We're going to survive. But there'll be real losers inside of Afghanistan and the women and the young girls. I fear they will be the worst. Is there going to be a Taliban 2.0? Policy-wise, from the top, they're going to tell you that there is. Uh, I just don't believe it when it comes down to the workplace and it comes down to the schoolyard, I'll believe it when I read about it and I see it. And then people who aren't part of the Taliban propaganda machine begin to report that, hey, you know, there really is a Taliban two point.
0: I think you've throughout this interview and this is my last question, you've definitely shown your expertise, you know, when it comes to your military side, but also just your deep knowledge of Afghanistan and its peoples and, and the, the daily interactions that go on, as well as the global interactions. Mm-hmm. Just sort of to sum up, what would you say are some of the most important lessons uh, encountered, as, as your book was entitled, or just lessons to learn as America looks back at decades of policy in Afghanistan and now has the uh, opportunity to look towards other areas of the world if it so chooses? Okay, I, I would say the first one is, this is a selfish American lesson.
1: If you are a great power or the United States, don't get involved in a counterinsurgency in somebody else's country where there is a secure, Safe haven across the border and a government with strong will and power who wants to support that insurgency. That's a very, very tough situation. So, if you have to conduct a military operation in such an environment, that argues for a raiding sort of approach where you come in and you say, this is our mission. It's a very small box. We will accomplish our mission, the six tasks in our mission, and when they are done, we will leave. What will happen to our friends and allies after? You know, they're on their own, or you know, you know, maybe we'll send the maid, but we're not going to be here to hold their hand. Uh, that's one potential lesson. But of course, you know, there's another way of doing business, and that's what happened in South Korea. Uh, And to some extent as well, what happened in Taiwan in the post-World War II era uh, is you go in there and you help people build institutions, you help them build their state, you help them to develop, and you insist on human rights and democracy to the greatest extent that you can. And then you, you make a determination to say, and um, you know, I look at places where we have stayed, Korea is one of my favorite examples, but I suppose you could throw into the mix um, uh, Japan uh, and Germany at the end of World War II. Now, how many of those commitments can you afford? Well, I would argue those commitments also begin to pay huge dividends. And right now, the United States, for a number of different reasons, a fantastic collection of friends and allies all over the world, which is our great advantage over China and Russia, who don't even have each other uh, as friends. China's only designated ally is North Korea. Be careful what you ask for, you may get it. But in any case, those are U.S. lessons. Um, Some tactical things, I I personally, and and I will say this, and I'm carrying a grudge about Pakistan. And that grudge extends to all the Americans who said, we've got to pressure Pakistan. And then we just up and turned around and found other reasons not to, such as, hey, they control your lines of communication and 85% of everything going into theater comes in through Karachi and then up uh, and through the Khyber Pass into Jalalabad. Uh, etc. But in any case, I think the Pakistanis did us wrong. I think they did the Afghan people wrong. And I think the Pakistanis are probably going to be sanctioned by the fact that they have an Islamic Emirate on their border now. And all of the people who want such an arrangement inside Pakistan, are probably riding very, very high. They're celebrating, but having taking anxiety meds at the same time, because this is a brave new world. And uh, I can remember in 2010, Pakistani uh, generals coming um, to the National Defense University and basically saying, we realize that the Taliban will never rule Afghanistan again, but there's a, for, there's a place for them in the political spectrum, blah, 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 blah. And I, I perhaps incorrectly believe that, that that's what they believed. But now uh, the Taliban are the government of Afghanistan. And uh, I, I'm sure there's a tremendous resentment for the fact uh, that the Pakistanis were often very tough on the Taliban who lived there, and they exploited the fact that their families lived uh, in Afghanistan and that, the, to some extent, the Taliban were beholden to the Pakistani military. Um, for example, I just just one example, Mullah Baradar, he was in a Pakistani jail. Why? Uh, He got out of line, and what did he do? He wanted to negotiate a political settlement in Afghanistan, Uh, which is just great. And and so the Trump administration pressured the Pakistanis to let him out when they were sort of negotiating, and he became part of the negotiating team. Now he's allegedly the number one Taliban uh, in Afghanistan. We'll see about that, though. There's going to be a food fight there. There's going to be a food fight inside the, the Taliban as to who comes out on top. And my money's on the guy named Haqqani. And that will be a truly scary development. If you do become uh, involved in developing countries, I do think it's important as you build institutions to deal with corruption uh, in a significant way, we tried to turn our back on it, but we did have some efforts like uh, a Task Force Shafafiat under General McMaster, and then uh, the recently retired Ricky Waddell followed him. Uh, you got to deal with the corruption, and and, and that includes also uh, in the military forces. It's difficult. My guess is that there's the vast majority of Americans will want to see very sharply limited commitments of military forces in the future and not to uh, get involved in long-term things that appear to be occupations uh, of someone else's country. Unfortunately, Dealing with that is uh, satisfactory to some, but it, in most cases, it's not going to solve problems. It's not going to solve problems of development. You know, the uh, great strategist, Little Heart, Sir Basil Little Heart, said that the purpose of war is a better peace. And it's important to keep that in perspective. At the same time, you have to know Uh, what the the freight
0: politically inside of your own country can bear. I think that is something that we should all keep in mind. Dr. Collins, I really want to thank you for sharing your expertise and opinions with us today. I'm sure anyone who listens to this podcast will surely appreciate your breadth and depth of knowledge. So thank you very much.
1: Uh, I would love to do more with your group, uh, the uh, Equanimity Foundation.
0: Absolutely. And to our listeners, thank you as well. Don't forget to subscribe to our content on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Also be sure to follow EQF on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thank you all for joining our conversation and we hope to speak with you soon. Thank you.